Hello everyone and welcome to the Dubcast with Dubside, where we talk about the art of Greenland-style kayaking. I'm Andrew Lazaga and I'll be hosting today's episode, where I'll be talking with Christopher Crowhurst, who is a Greenland-style instructor and the former president of Kayak USA, the American chapter of Kanat Katufiat, the Greenland Kayaking Association. Christopher is also a kayak builder and designer, founder of Kayak Camp, a traditional kayak symposium held every spring in Minnesota, and author and producer of Rolling with Sticks, a Greenland rolling guidebook and DVD. Welcome, Christopher, and thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks, Andrew. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So what was it like being president of Kayak USA? Well, it seems like a long time ago, <laughs> although it's really only been a couple of years. Um, I was very fortunate when I got involved in Kayak USA from an organizational perspective in that I was introduced by some people who had been involved in the traditional green and paddling scene for, for many years. They uh, introduced me to Terry O'Malley and Terry was at the time the, the president of Kayak USA and he had been in the board for many years and so he knew that there was a lot of change needed in the organization and he also knew that the organization was very slow to change. But we had a generation of leadership that had all sort of grown through the organization for many years and were reaching the point where they needed to retire and we needed to to replace the the organization's leadership. And so Terry introduced me to Dan Siegel and Dan groomed me into the role of the events director because Kayak USA is really to a large part the events that it sanctions. So as an organization, when you think about what are the products or output of it, the events are a huge part of what it does in terms of preserving the culture of passing on the skills. And so being the events director introduced me to the nuances of how the organization likes to promote teaching, of how we like the transmission of information, but also that the, the diversity of what goes on within the organization. Having spent a number of years working as the events director, I moved into the role of secretary, which really exposed me to the complexities of running a board. So by the time I became president, I was well versed in the personalities and the way the organization operated and also its challenges. One of the the biggest challenges, which was probably transparent to most members, was the technology that we were running on. We had developed an infrastructure that was built by Greg Stammer, who you've already interviewed in in the, the dubcast. And he was a developer and he had built this platform that, that had aged and it had come to a point where it needed to be replacing. Uh, but it was a, a very large undertaking to migrate the membership, the content and everything off of the old platform onto a new one. So we went through a process of, of reviewing the options and bringing, on, bringing the organization onto a new technology platform, which occupied a lot of my time, which is nothing to do with Greenland paddling. However, 
it was essential to the mission of the organization, which was to continue to propagate the information that had been stored in the forums and through the links created through the conversations amongst the members. And so from the aspect of it, it combined my sort of non-kayaking career, which is technology, and my passion for green and kayaking and allowed me to merge the two together for a period of time and help the organization progress technologically. I also then had to go through the process of engaging new members into the board because, as I was saying, we were getting ready to turn over nearly everyone on the board with Greg expressing a desire to step down, Ben, who was the treasurer, Terry stepping down out of the president's role into the past president's role and then leaving the board. We were also going through a process where the focus of the organization in the early 2010s was very much around the knowledge um, of the historians within the organization. And one of the things that I think has changed, not necessarily for the better over the past few years, is a move away from the historical aspects and more towards, I would say the practical aspects, but I think that's the wrong word. I think more of the physical aspects. How do you actually realize Greenland paddling today? It's by putting a paddle in your hands, by picking up a harpoon. It's by taking a stroke. It's by making a roll. It's by throwing the harpoon. And we focused a lot more on that than we have necessarily on the skills and knowledge of the builders of the techniques and where they came from. And so I think one of the current struggles in the organization is that balance between historical knowledge and current abilities, where there's a great passion today, um, especially sort of in Europe and in the US, to learn to roll, to get the next greatest role. And that's just one part of a very large culture but it's one part that people have got very passionate about because there's competitions about it, because it's fun and it looks great on Instagram. And so the challenge then becomes, how do you preserve all the knowledge and the history around the designs, the construction methods, the, the techniques and the equipment and the, um, the raw materials that go into making a kayak and why a kayak was even made in the first place. And a lot of that knowledge is in danger of being lost. One of the other challenges we live in is we live in a, in a time when we are quite challenged by the concept between appropriation and, let's say, reverence. And th there's a grave danger of the organization being a bunch of old gray-haired white guys pretending to be Inuit. And that isn't the intention of the organization, but at times it's the perspective that people have of the organization. And I think we need to be very clear that we aren't supporting cultural appropriation, we're, we're supporting cultural appreciation. And there's there's been some discussion recently about is it the role of a bourgeois middle class Americans to go out and preserve a culture of what is now a thriving Inuit population in Greenland? And so Kayak USA is is 
is transforming. It's discussing what its role is in today's society, how it best should support what it's doing, because its original mission statement, I wouldn't say it's been fulfilled, but is it as relevant today as it was when the organization was founded and the kayaking community in Greenland was at such a sort of an inception point of itself growing, having diminished as the culture sort of almost vanished. And so there's a sensitivity now that we don't want to step on the toes of the people whose culture it is whilst we support in ways that they want. And so asking how the people of Greenland's kayaking community want Kayak USA and other organizations like it to support them is really the the process that's being gone through. So that now I, I'm, I'm still on the board for uh, a few more months as the past president before I'll step down in January and make way for sort of the next generation of the board. But we're seeing this growing understanding that we have to move from appropriation to appreciation to supporting their mission, not our mission. I've noticed there's always been this tension between the enthusiasts who will take the Greenland techniques, especially in kayaks and building kayaks, and do whatever they want with them, come up with really creative skin-on-frame kayaks, but it's not traditional. You can't really say it's a Greenland kayak. Some people just want to have fun with it and others take it much more seriously. And also, there are a lot of resources now in terms of in terms of equipment, paddles, kayaks that you can get commercially and uh, Kayak USA has no say over that. Do you think Kayak USA then has become less relevant or uh, have you seen that affect its membership? I certainly think that we've seen a change in the membership and a change of the demographics. But when you look at the events that are the core and the heart of the organization, it's a very similar type of person. Um, and so I, I think that, if anything, the growth in popularity of Greenland style kayaking has fueled Kayak USA as well. And Kayaks USA membership has almost been static for the past decade, the number. And it, you know, it ebbs and flows. It always grows around the moments when events are being held. And this weekend, there's the training camp, Michigan training camp is being held. And I know that it created another uh, dozen or so new members that joined our organization, which is wonderful. Hope we really appreciate their support. But you bring up some really interesting points. And I think it's also interesting that we call it Greenland style kayaking. And I think it's important to understand we don't, we're not Greenland kayakers, are we? We're in America or Canada or wherever we're sitting today. And we are using equipment that's styled like that which was used in Greenland and that which is used in Greenland today. And our kayaks are similar to a kayak. Now, even the use of the word kayak is kind of interesting because there's this purest notion of when is a kayak a kayak, when is a kayak not a kayak. And, you know, there's the the kayariak. I apologize for butchering the pronunciation, but it means like a kayak. And 
you know, a, a, an NDK Romani is like a kayak. It's not a kayak. It's not a skin on frame that's custom made to the paddler who it was designed for, for its specific purpose. But it's like a kayak. It's shaped like a kayak. But today in the society outside of Greenland, they're called kayaks. And we've all become accustomed to and familiar with calling them kayaks. But certain people would get quite offended by that. And so there's all sort of these debates as to what to, what should we call things? And is the only thing a kayak a kayak that's made as a skin on frame or what happens if you use a fuselage frame as opposed to steam bent ribs and what happens if you use nylon for the skin as opposed to seal skin and and so it goes on and you know i i think that those things are not particularly relevant to what's being tried to achieve on the one hand there's this transmission of skills which is the skills to create motion in a kayak, whether it's forward or upside down, right? How do we learn to paddle efficiently? How do we learn to paddle silently? How do we learn to roll one-armed? How do we learn to, to, to roll holding a fish in the other hand? All these fun skills that have a practical application if you enjoy tripping or you just want to compete in a, in a rolling competition. And then there's the whole set of skills about building a skin-on-frame kayak. And the, the, the challenge for me is Kayak USA should be about all of that. And there are times when Kayak USA is and there's times when it isn't. But some of our events are very good at trying to um, bring the whole wealth of the culture together. For example, at training camp, frequently there's a skin on frame kayak that will be reskinned at it. Or they'll do maintenance on one of the Kayak USA fleet kayaks there to help people understand how to sew, how to whip, um, how to use artificial sinew, how to steam bend wood, all the skills that are necessary to form a, a skin on frame kayak. At the same time, they'll teach rolls, they'll teach forward strokes, they'll teach how to turn and maneuver a kayak, and they'll teach um, how to throw a harpoon. And, and so there are events that are exceptionally good at bringing all that together. But does that make it wrong to do all those skills but happen to do it in a, a fiberglass rebel kayak or, you know, the latest and greatest rolling machine, whatever that is? Does that mean you're not being authentic? I, I think the challenge is to balance accessibility against the mission that we're trying to achieve. If you started make, taking the position that you're only doing Greenland kayaking, if you're doing it in a skin on frame, if you're doing it with a hand carved wooden paddle and you're only doing it in a seal skin tulip, well, suddenly no one's going to be able to do it in the United States. There's going to be no global renaissance of Greenland style kayaking. Is that really helpful to anyone? I don't think it is. I think one of the challenges that we face is, is it our right to evolve the culture that exists in Greenland? And I'd argue, absolutely not, it isn't. As long as we acknowledge that everything we're doing is informed by, educated, and stands on the shoulders of the giants, of all the Inuit who have built kayaks in the past and transferred that knowledge on, then we are honoring the roots of what we're doing. I think the danger comes 
when we appropriate the skills without acknowledging their origin, without discussing and educating people that we're able to do this because these people fought for their survival against the elements using driftwood to make hunting craft that they used to throw spears and harpoons with sharpened rocks on the end to kill sea mammals, to live off of. If we, if we acknowledge that, I think that we can move beyond this purest view that you're only doing it right if you're doing it in the original exact way. You know, Dubside, he rolls in whatever kayak he's handed at an event. Why? Because he's trying to help educate people in the origins and he knows that he can't do it in a 100% authentic way. So he'll do it in the best way with the best tools that he has at his disposal today. And I think that's what we've all got to aim to do. And we've all got to aim to do it in a way that to the best of our efforts acknowledges the origins and respects the origins. Don't claim it's ours. Acknowledge that it isn't and, and move forward from there. And so, you know, I will admit there are days that I paddle fiberglass kayaks. And it was kind of interesting when you think about when I joined Kayak USA's board, there was quite a debate amongst the existing directors as to whether I should, because I had a blog, I had a website, I had kayak designs, I had these things going on. And so did I acknowledge that I wasn't the source of all that information. And so I was pretty careful on my websites. And if you look at them, especially the kayak design website, to acknowledge where all that came from. This isn't my design. I created a process to make these kayak designs in simple ways using modern materials to try and allow young people with less means to enjoy the practice of being in a hard-chined kayak in a safe manner today. That's very different than saying, Chris and Nick Crow has designed this great kayak and we think you should build one. When you look at what we tried to do, we've, we've tried to be careful to acknowledge the origins of all of this. And that's true even of Kayak Rolls, my rolling website, is that you know there's not a single roll on there that I invented. There's not a single technique on there that I invented. This is just me using modern technology to share with people how I learned to roll. That's the bit where we just need to sort of be very, very careful. We, 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 didn't, we didn't develop these roles. We didn't make them. We are using this great traditional skill to allow us to take trips in modern kayaks with greater safety. It sounds like you would want to give a acknowledgement every time you talk about Greenland-style kayaks. You know, like People give land acknowledgments these days before public meetings. We acknowledge that uh, we are on indigenous land. To say, well, we acknowledge that uh, we did not design or create these techniques. They come from the Inuit. I, 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 I agree with you. It's interesting. My kayaking got me into yoga and I became a, a registered yoga instructor. And through that, I invested some time in learning about the cultural appropriation of yoga from India and the colonization that took place in India. And that introduced me to land acknowledgements. And you know, one of the things that I practice is a land acknowledgement at the beginning of my yoga practice. And where I live, it's the Midwakaran Sioux. Um, this is their land. 
that we we took away from them. And so I do a land acknowledgement when I teach yoga here. And some people find it deeply offensive. Some people just find it strange and others appreciate it for what it is. And I think that's one of the challenges of that kind of behavior today. We we run the risk of, of putting up the headlights of he's being woke, mm-hmm. which will then turn people off what the actual message is. And so I'd prefer to do it in a more subtle way. Whilst that would be an approach that might work at some of our events, because a lot of the people that show up at Kayak USA sanctioned events are already ingrained in this and would likely you know, agree with the reverential treatment of the origins of Greenland kayaking. Um, but there are also those who disagree with that kind of thing. And it's it's like the whole, should a kayak be called a boat? Well, there's good historical reasons why it shouldn't be, but many people are going to. So does that mean that I won't ever talk to them ever again? Of course not. It just means that we have a good discussion about it and we part without agreement. And that's cool. And I think that one of the challenges is that I always face in these kind of situations is that blend of accessibility. How do you make this accessible to people? How do you give them the opportunity to become absorbed in this culture and hope that it seeps into them in such a way that they embrace that without it having to be thrust into their faces? Because I agree with you. We could just go around and saying, all hail the, 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 the kayak. It came from Greenland. Let's acknowledge that before we step into it every day. But I don't think that's going to cause more people to adopt Greenland-style kayaking, nor for them to learn the skills, nor for us to preserve it longer. And so I, I think that we we have to be careful about how how we move forward and and how we don't alienate large numbers of people through the way we try and educate. How did you? first get into Greenland style and uh, why were you attracted to it? Well, I live in an area of Minnesota which has 10,000 lakes and when I moved to Minnesota I naturally jumped into a kayak and started paddling on the local lakes and my wife and I were paddling through what's known as the chain of lakes in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. We were on our third lake and in the distance, I could see a collection of sea kayaks. So I got all excited and paddled swiftly over to them. And it was, I think, four or five local paddlers from the local paddle club. And one of them was showing off. And I thought it was so cool. And what were they doing? They were doing their favorite 10 Greenland rolls. And I was like, wow, that looks so much fun. So I went home, made a paddle and started rolling. And it was that simple. I just was attracted to the motion, the fluidity, the the fun of what he was doing. My first role had come prior to that. It wasn't a Greenland role. It wasn't with a Greenland paddle. My father had taught me to do a C to C role in Baya Honda Key down in Florida one winter. And I'd taken my rotor molded capella down to the ocean and spent a week camping on Baya Honda. And my father had taught me to, to roll. So that's where my rolling experience had come from. But then when I saw the sort of the effortless grace that, that comes from a true understanding of how to use a paddle in the water to roll yourself up, it was amazing. And I was hooked. I was also fortunate in that the Midwest US had a great set of mentors at that time who were willing to share their knowledge. 
in Minnesota, the water is only fluid for about half the year. The other half, it's frozen. And so we spend time in swimming pools or if you're brave, you go and find rivers where the water keeps moving enough that it doesn't freeze. And so I spent a winter learning a lot of roles and there were a couple of local paddlers, Ron Steinwall, Alex Pack, all members of Kayak USA who were willing just to work with me on the fundamentals of how to, to roll a kayak. And I just invested time in doing that. It was kind of interesting because I took a lot of notes when I was learning to roll. And I wrote down the body mechanics. I wrote down the positions. I drew stick figures of them. And it was through that learning process that I started documenting rolling with sticks, which became my little book and subsequently a DVD of how to roll. I used my own experience documenting that. And as I advanced through the roles, learning the mechanics and the 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 sort of the way you needed to move both with the water and through the water in order to roll efficiently. And so I still have the handwritten notes that were the, the starting point for that. And it was through a series of pool sessions of obsessively every week going out and spending two, three hours exhausting myself learning to roll. And then it carried on in the local lakes. Um, and I purchased my first sort of Greenland style kayak, which was a Tahi Greenland at the time. And I bought Betsy Bay paddles. And Betsy Bay paddles are a fairly distinctive paddle in that they have a round shaft and that shaft extends a little bit like an Aleutian paddle down the blade. Not very traditional at all, but I didn't know any better at the time. That's what I bought because that was what was available at the store. And then that subsequent year, I started meeting and learning an awful lot from the local paddlers and started to realize that there was so much more to paddle carving than the paddle that I was holding in my hands. And I started carving my own paddles. I've always made things. And so that led me to starting to build skin on frame kayaks. Um, and my first skin on frame kayak was a, an Aleutian kayak actually. So Arctic, at least it was above the Arctic circle, <laughs> it was a Robert Morris design, um, retrieval kayak or recovery kayak, which was meant for hunters who were gun hunting to go in amongst the ice to retrieve the carcass of their prey and then throw it on their stern deck and paddle back out again. So a highly maneuverable, very short kayak, which was great fun to build. And I actually started building it at a Kayak USA event. I bought the materials, sat down at a table in the camp, and there happened to be three or four really great kayak builders attending that event, and they just helped me through it. They showed me how to bend ribs. They showed me how to tie the knots with the artificial sinew. And they took what was this mystical, really difficult mental challenge and made it very physically easy by showing me with my, their hands and my hands what to do. So I really benefited from the local paddling community and their relationship to Kayak USA to get me way beyond the passion for rolling into the passion for carving paddles and then eventually building skin on frame kayaks as well. Why did you choose that particular kayak instead of a, a Greenland kayak? Well, initially it was, to be honest with you, it was because I thought it was short and would be quick and easy to build. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it actually has become a great fun kayak to own because, um, a friend of mine had built one previously 
and they had explained how theirs was kind of challenged by waves. It would it would sink its bow. So I deliberately made quite a lot of rocker in the front of this kayak, and it became a really great surfing kayak. And so I I have a lot of fun surfing in it. But it's a good question. Why not build a greening kayak? I think I was intimidated, to be honest with you, as I think many people are intimidated by the idea of building a 16-foot-long, 20-inch-wide beautiful looking thing that you see there and it's like, oh, I can't ever make it look that pretty. I, I think until you build your first one, you don't realize quite how simple it is and how wonderfully organic the whole process is. You get intimidated by the idea of all the tools you need and all the measurements you need to take when in reality it becomes so simple and your second, third and fourth ones are so much easier than your first one. Have you built a number of skin on frame kayaks since then? Oh yes, many. My, I think my total count of kayaks at this point is, is hovering around the 20. Oh wow. I've built a lot of kayaks, many different methods. Um, I've even built a nylon and aluminum framed kayak. I, I made a folding kayak using the Yost designs, which was great fun. So yes, I, I've, I've built rather a lot of kayaks. I'm kind of addicted to it. What's your favorite technique of building? Wow. It depends on what I'm trying to achieve. So for me, building kayaks is as a form of therapy. I've struggled with depression for probably a decade, if not three decades. But what I found is building things is amazing therapy for me. I think it's partly to do with the repetitive motion of it. It's much like why meditation has become such a passion of mine, because it's a very soothing thing. For me, building a kayak is a very soothing thing. And I think Probably the most soothing method of building a kayak is a strip-built kayak because it's so repetitive. Each strip, you're repeating the thing you did before. You're planing it in a very similar way. There's a lot of repetitive motion in it. And I can become absorbed in it. I can put on 8, 12 strips in a day and not realize that a minute has passed. And so if I'm looking to soothe myself, calm down, recover from something that's occurred. Strip building is an amazing process. If I want to feel really connected to the water, there is nothing like a skin on frame kayak. I love the way they bend and flex. I love the way the skin moves as you go over waves. You can feel the water's temperature through your heels, all these things that really connect you to the experience. And so I do think that there's something wonderful about paddling anything that you make, whether it's a rowing boat, a sailing boat, or a kayak. The fact that you made it, there's a there's a connection that you have to it that is so different than going into Walmart and buying a plastic kayak and sitting in the water. But when you sort of peel it back, each technique has a different level of connection to the water in my experience. And so the closest I can get to the water is in a skin-on-frame kayak by far. My next passion project is going to be building an ikiak or a baidaka. I'm really keen to do that because of a friend, Anders Thigerson from Norway, who has sort of convinced me that it might be the next greatest kayak for me to go in trips in, for its gear carrying, for its straight-line speed, 
Um, so I'm really kind of looking forward to this winter building a, an ikiak. I'm contemplating if I can afford it to go to Norway to take one of his classes to build it and then ship it home in a box and put it back together again because I just think it would be so much fun to learn from someone with the experience that he has of building of building these things. But the ikiak is interesting in that it flexes along its keel or its spine. When you look at it, it's a skeleton and its spine is flexible. And in fact, some of the original designs even used the bones from, from mammalian spines to create these lubricated joints between the ribs and the, and the keel. And I just think it's just incredible to think how these these kayaks must feel in the waves. So I'm that's my next passion is is to build a, an an ikiak. Sounds like an amazing project. What do you think the purpose was of those joints in the in the keel? Boy, I've read so many books that hypothesize so many different things. Some of them were very long. And when they're long, they they could span between peaks of waves. They were also used for carrying considerable loads at times between villages. And so if you think you've suspended what is basically a tube between two waves, there must be quite a lot of load in the middle. And I'm wondering if it's to help it flex so that it doesn't break. That's one possibility. The other possibility is if you think about the way fish move through the water, it's not static. They flex and they move and they muscles adapt. And I'm wondering if there's a performance gain through this flexing as you go through the waves. So, you know, romantically, I'd like to think that it's because I'm going to be more like a fish if my kayak flexes. Practically, I think it might have been more to do with creating strength. Things that move and give are generally much more strong than things that are rigid as can be seen by the amazing strength that a skin on frame kayak has. If you drop it, it's just going to laugh at you. You drop a fiberglass kayak, it's going to have a hole in it. Do you base your skin on frame kayaks on drawings of uh, museum kayaks? Some. So the, the designs that my father and I put together on CNC kayaks were developed from a museum drawing by Harvey Golden in his um, kayaks of Greenland book. And we sort of acknowledge precisely which one it is and the, the, the facets that we changed. And the things we changed were to make it with modern materials that are available to us today, like plywood and epoxy, and also to put things like bulkheads in it to create flotation, whereas, you know, a traditional skin on frame until you put materials inside it or buoyancy bags, you, you have very little flotation. So we wanted to benefit both from the ease of construction as well as the materials that exist today and the tools that exist today to make it very simple for people to do it. But we just basically copied the, the Disco Bay design, which is really the foundation design that was used for the majority of the British sea kayaks, you know, starting with the Anasakuta, moving into things like the Nord Cap, the Romani, and all that, that sort of, that, that sequence of kayaks that have been constructed over the, the past decades, they all came from that same kayak design, which is a beautiful, beautiful design. Then I've done all sorts of other things, though. One of my favorite projects was I put a kayak upside down on a, on a workhorse, and then next to it, I constructed a replica of it just by eye. So I actually took one of my favorite rolling kayaks and said, I'm going to make that as a skin-on-frame kayak now. And I just copied it. 
by eye, looking at from the side, using my arms to measure things, my hands to measure things, and just reconstructed it using traditional methods so that I could have a kayak that I could use for rolling. And it's now my favorite rolling kayak. I'm actually reskinning it at the moment in my workshop. It suffered some damage. And uh, through years of neglect, it, the ends rotted. As I built it from really cheap wood and I didn't oil the skin because when I get when I get building these kayaks, I tend to get really excited, which means they get built really fast. And that tends to mean that then I skip things like maybe it's a good idea to treat the skin with some linseed oil or something. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to skin it now so I can get it afloat and paddling tomorrow because I just get excited. And my passion sometimes means that these projects need love after the fact. And this kayak really needs some love. I'm going to have to replace the uh, the piece of wood for the stem as it's rotted out after a number of years now. And I think that I'm trying to pace myself so that I'll actually oil the frame and maybe it'll last a few more years or maybe I'll throw some salt in the ends to keep the the rot at bay for a while. But uh, yeah, that, that kayak weighed 19 pounds. So it was amazingly light. It would generally put on a couple of pounds with a rolling session when the water would leak in around the cockpit rim or whatever and then would get absorbed by the wood. So it would weigh a little heavier coming out of the water than when it went in. I'm sure that's not a, unusual when you think about animal skins probably absorb some of the water and moisture as well. And probably the kayaks would weigh a lot more when they came out of the water than when they went in. So maybe that's authentic. Haven't thought about that. The nice thing about skin on frame kayaks is you can take them apart and rebuild them and modify them and you can do that for I, years yeah i think one of my favorite stories is a good friend of mine who you've already interviewed tim galloway he he took his kayak apart put it in a box took it to greenland and reassembled it i think that's wonderful and that's kind of my inspiration for maybe if i build a an ikiak in norway i can take it apart and put it in a box and bring it home so i i, I do i do like that and i i think um i'm also at the moment repairing some uh, a, a plywood kayak that I built a while back that needs needs some love. And whilst it's pretty easy to repair wood, it's so much easier just to take a knife and slice off a, an old skin of a skin on frame and put a new one on. And it gives you the opportunity to change its color. You can, this time I'm experimenting with a different stitch and a different method for tightening the skin. And there's just so much to learn. It doesn't matter that I've built 20 kayaks. I there's so much more to learn each time you can experiment with something different, try a different technique and know that it's not final mm -hmm. because if it doesn't work, okay, get some more fabric next year and try it again. Have you experimented with different uh, fabrics and, and coatings? Yes. I've used ballistic nylon a lot and I've used what's been sort of commonly known as goop, Corris goop from the skin boat store. And I have to say it's really great but I hate using it. So I'm, I'm like torn by the thing. I, I love the robustness. I love the flexibility of the skin once you've used it. But I really don't like the process of putting it on because you're sort of squeegeeing it onto the cloth and it. I just feel out of control. Maybe I'm a control freak and that's why it matters. But I prefer a brush and a roller, and it's really challenging material to use that kind of technique with. So I prefer now just to use paint. And the funny thing about this is, you know, you, you read the forums and there's all these debates, oh, Rust-Oleum's better than this, that's better than that. It doesn't matter. Just buy some cheap exterior grade paint and slap it on. At the end of the day, it's not going to last long enough to matter 
you're going to replace it, you're going to reskin it, you're going to repaint it anyway. So what I'm working on at the moment is a blended fabric actually bordered in Norway. It's a, it's a combination of polyester and nylon that is really great because you put it on wringing wet and then it shrinks nicely onto the frame. So you don't have to put too much tension in your stitches and the fabric itself, because you're sewing it really soaking wet, you put a little bit of tension on with the stitches and then as it dries, it it tightens up and you go, well, doesn't it then sag when it gets wet? No, because it doesn't get wet because you're gonna soak it in paint. And so afterwards I'm soaking it in you know, paint and, or even just varnish. So, you know, just a polyurethane varnish, you can, you can slap on there. I don't recommend the water-based varnishes, not had much luck with those, to be honest with you. I'm much preferring the old fashioned spa varnishes. Spa varnish is good because it's designed for a mask, a spa. And so it's, it's flexible. So it doesn't harden as much as some varnishes do and some paints that form like rigid skins and then when the skin on frame skin flexes the paint tends to crack and think bad things happen so you want you just need a material that's going to remain flexible but most exterior grade paints will work just fine i feel the same way about Corey's goop i like the end result when it goes on well but uh when it doesn't go on well, you have all these uh, drips that you have to live with. Yeah, I've learned not to do it near dinner time because what used to happen to me was I'd put the first few coats on, then it'd be dinner and my wife would summon me upstairs from my workshop. I'd go up there and I'd come back down and it was too late to scrape the, the, the runs out. <laughs> it's one of those things where I kind of like to constantly move around the kayak, adjusting that finish until you sense it's time to stop. And if you don't have that time, it's hard to get a great finish. But boy, when it's great, it's great. And it really seals beautifully and you can fill up all the, the sewing holes from the needles and it's, it does such a great job. And I think if you are constantly building kayaks and you could really work on perfecting that technique, I'm sure it's, it's a really great method. But if someone's just gonna build one kayak, I would be hesitant to make that be the technique that I was going to use, although it was the technique that I used on my very first skin on frame. And I finished one that way last year. But uh, my, my favorite one at the moment is just to use exterior grade paint. Well, let's talk about the two kayaks that you have free plans for on your website, the Shrike and the Vember. Well, first of all, how did you come up with those two names? Well, it's kind of a secret. But if you're a rock climber and you happen to climb in North Wales, it's possible that they're named after some rock climbs in North Wales. Some of my greatest childhood memories were climbing in North Wales with my father, and maybe it's related to that. But we, we don't officially reveal the sources of our names, although it is kind of funny because when we came up with the original Shrike, the full-size Shrike, it's made for, you know, like a... A Greenland kayak is. It's designed to carry a load and it's a hard chine kayak. And my immediate response was, Ooh, I want to modify that to make it roll really, really well. So what did I do? I chopped two inches, 60 millimeters off the, the shear, dropped it down. So it was seriously low volume and, and started rolling in it. Well, it rolled beautifully before and it really rolled well afterwards. And so I put an R at the end and said it was the Shrike R. And then my wife called it the Shriker. And I was like, 
this is when I learned that you do what your wife says. So it became known as the Shriker because that was what my wife called it. I've always liked to call it the Shrike R. One of the, the joys of the design is that it's provided as a series of full-size plans that you print out. You go down to your, your local print shop, your office shop like Office Depot or something, and they print out on their, their poster plotter these full-size plans. What that allows you to do is say, well, what if I'm a small person? I'd like a smaller kayak. And I say, great, print, this, print the plan smaller. And so we provided this graph and algorithm so you can say, if my weight is 150 pounds, then print the plans to 96%. If my weight is 180 pounds, print it to 100%. If my weight is 220 pounds, print it to 110%. And so we provide this ability to scale up and scale down the design. And so whilst on the website we provide like an LV, all an LV is, is a 95% version of the full-size Shrike. We also then show on the plans how to reduce the freeboard. So depending upon your weight, if you want to have a day-tripping kayak that can handle so much weight, you know, your lunch, that's one thing. If you want to carry camping gear, that's a whole other thing. And if you want to carry no gear and just go rolling with the minimum freeboard to be competitive and legal, sort of 15 millimeters, this is the how big to build it. So we can enable people to customize that design incredibly simply just by going to the print shop and saying, can you print it to a different percentage for me? And so it's become very popular design. We've now had about 500 that we know have been built by people being in touch with us. We suspect there's a lot more. We, we know how many are downloaded from our website. So, you know, I think it's like 7,000 downloads at this point of the plans. And we know of the ones of people that have shared photographs with us of their completed builds. But we suspect there's way more because I keep coming across them and people keep reaching out and saying, hey, just wanted to let you know I built a kayak. I've got two people emailed me yesterday photographs. One was from Germany and the other was from the Ukraine. Even in the midst of the war going on in Ukraine, the invasion, there's people still building shrikes, which is remarkable. Mm -hmm. So one was launched um, last week, which is it was really fun, wild paint scheme. So it's, it's really wonderful to see people customize them. And you can also customize the deck height. We made the plans really simple to make. You need very few tools. doesn't cost much money. About somewhere between 500 and 800 US dollars will see you a beautiful Shrike finished. Then, of course, it's like, well, what's the Vemba? A Vemba is a Shrike turned into a round bilge kayak. So it's basically the same kayak turned into a round build one. So it's like the difference between an Anasakuta and a Romani. What's really the difference? One's round builded and the other's hard chined. So you can think of the Vemba being the uh, rounded out version of the Shrike. What it does is it takes away the primary instability of a hard chined kayak. Primary instability being that that initial feeling of wobbliness that you get when you sit in a traditional kayak where it wants to fall over onto one of its chines. Instead, it becomes that comfortable, modern feeling of a kayak that people are used to being in. It also increases the storage capacity and the load carrying of it, and it gained some, some secondary stability. One of the things that I then pointed out to my father was we didn't have a lot of storage capacity in either of these kayaks and it would be really nice to have an expedition version of it. So we created the Shrike, uh, sorry, the uh, the Vembex, X for expedition or extended. 
And what we did was purely lengthen it. So because the Vember is a round bilge kayak, we it's built with strips, strips of whatever material you're going to use. I've tended to use cedar because it's widely available in the US. But in order to build a strip kayak, you, you build these forms, which are the shape of the kayak inside, and you do them maybe every 30 centimeters or every foot. And in order to change the shape, it's, it's, a, it's a little more complex than the Shrike in that you can't just say, print it 10%, although you actually can do that. You have to create 10% greater gap between each of the forms. But what I said is, how about we just build it longer? So we built it um, 10% longer. And so the Vembex is just a Vember that's stretched by 10%. It does need a different bow and stern because when you stretch the bow and stern forms, they actually change the shape to keep a beautiful looking bow and stern. And it's become a really great kayak for me. It's probably the easiest kayak to paddle at four miles an hour that I know. And four miles an hour is a lovely speed to paddle at if you're going on trips. If you're going to do 20 miles in a day, paddling at four miles an hour makes it a five hours a paddling day, which is really pretty pretty easy, pretty comfortable. And so for me, it's my favorite expedition kayak. It's probably the fastest kayak I own. And it's a design that it's like we're really hesitant to change anything about it because it seems to have found that sweet spot for someone in the 150 to 190 pound range, it's a really great tripping kayak. It's very swift. You know, being a strip-built kayak, it requires the skills necessary to build a strip-built kayak, which are a lot less than people think, but it's still an intimidating design. So far fewer Vembers have been built than Shrikes. And I think it's just because of the intimidation of a strip-built kayak. But we've had you know, I think we're approaching 50 of them are built now. It, it's it's only been around a few years. So I expect there'll be many more of them built. It's, it's a hybrid strip built kayak in that we put a plywood deck on it because it makes it so easy to do. One of the challenges of strip built kayaks, if you make them purely of strips, is you have to marry the deck to the hull. You build them separately and then you put them together. Well, in this method, you build a hull, you flip it upside down, and then you just lay a sheet of plywood on top and cut around it. It's that simple to put a deck on, which makes it very appealing and very quick to build. It also makes it very light. And so from above, all my kayaks look the same, the Vembers or Shrikes, because they all have the same shape. They all have the same plywood deck. You look from the side and one's a round build, strip built, and the other's a hard chine plywood kayak. So it's it's been a, a project of love. My father and I started it with the hope that someone else would build the design. We could never have believed that we'd have so many people share their builds with us. We have a group in Scotland that runs a workshop twice a year, the Archipelago Folk School up in the the Highlands. And they have had, I think, over 30 people build kayaks now through their school, all of them shrikes. It's beautiful. They share the pictures with us every year and... We promote them in our build gallery. But it's great to see so many people building these kayaks that previously would have just bought them. And I think that pretty much everyone that's built one will acknowledge that they feel a a sense of connection to their kayak and to the water once you've built it yourself that you can't replicate by going in and handing over your credit card. I understand your father is quite a sea kayaker. He's uh, even written a guidebook about kayaking along the Florida coast titled Florida's Hidden Coast. 
That's right. So I can blame my parents for my passion for the water. I, I, I was afloat from the day I was born, basically. I was a sailor initially. I learned to sail at the ripe old age of three. There's photographs of me sailing single-handedly at age four. And my parents have built sailing boats their entire life. My father also kayaked from his youth and he built his first kayak, you know, when, when he was a, a Cub Scout, I believe. That was a, a skin-on-frame fuselage, skin-on-frame at the time. But yes, he's a BCU four-star paddler. He hasn't paddled now for a number of years because of uh, he has a neuropathy issue with the nerves in his legs that are preventing him from staying seated without his legs going numb. So it's been an awful time for him where he hasn't been able to paddle for many, many, many months. So I'm actually flying over to England shortly and he's demanding that I put him in the front of a double a tandem and take him for a paddle so that he can uh, enjoy being afloat again. But yes, my father, he started coming to Florida when I moved to the United States uh, about 25 years ago. And my my mother and him would winter in Florida and they have an Airstream travel trailer that they traveled around. And of course, they had kayaks with them. And uh, he started paddling the Gulf Coast of Florida up near the panhandle and discovered that there was amazing kayaking and very little guidebooks. So they started documenting each of their paddles that they enjoyed. And uh, now there's a freely downloadable book that uh, promotes all of the different paddles along that section of the coast. It's a beautiful area. I visited it and love to stay in Cedar Key and then paddle out amongst the islands there. And it's uh, just lovely to be paddling in such warm, clear water at the moment. To Minnesota, we tend to either paddle in clear, cold water, the beginning and end of season, or very green, warm water. Once the algae blooms form in our local lakes, it, it is a pretty unattractive place to paddle at this time of year, <laughs> apart from the Great Lakes, which are just wonderful. I'm heading there in seven days' time to go out to the Apostle Islands with a friend, and we're, uh, we'll be paddling in some beautiful water in Lake Superior. It, it is a it's a great little book. You can download it if you do a web search for uh, Kayaking Hidden Coast. You'll be able to find the PDF freely downloadable from the website that gives you all the little maps and the GPS waypoints so that you can enjoy that part of the coast safely. Wonderful. What was your father's role in designing the Shrike in November? So I would have to say that my father is the, the chief protagonist of this project completely. It was his passion project and he roped me into it. And I'm delighted he did because it's been so much fun. Dad formed the first prototype Shrike uh, in his workshop in Calstock in Cornwall, England. And um, I flew over to the UK to join him and help with different parts of the project. But he actually started... Uh, the methodology that he wanted to use to disseminate the designs, this idea that we can do full-size plans to make it really easy to cut out sheets of ply and stick them together and form these beautiful kayaks. So he started that process by mocking up in cardboard these sheets and then building the very first design. And that was a trial and error. You can imagine that the very first one didn't come out quite like the second one. And so uh, he 
he worked on that and then we worked together on the second design and perfecting the shape and by repetitively building it we found where the curves needed to be because many people think oh you just download a piece of software throw a few things into it and you're going to get a kayak out the other side you're going to get something that looks like a kayak and it won't perform well because all of these software packages they build something based upon an algorithm that some software developer, some engineer put into a system that says that's how you bend a sheet into a three-dimensional object. And what we knew was the complexity of the beautiful shape of these traditional builds couldn't be automagically generated by a piece of software. It was as much an art as it was a craft, as it was a science. And so we needed to keep the art alive and so that's why we did it through building and modeling in physical full size versus drawing on a computer. Drawing on a computer came way later. What we did is we took the actual panels that we used to build the kayak and we measured them all precisely, put them into a CAD software and then turned it into a smooth curve and then printed it out and built one to make sure it was right. So we built a real kayak and we then digitized it. Many people ask us, oh, could I have the offsets, please, so I could build one? It was like, they don't exist because that's not how we designed it, which I don't know if it's unheard of to do it that way, but we enjoy doing it that way. And we kind of enjoy that there aren't offsets because it was a very organic process to build it. And so, yeah, dad is absolutely foundational to this project. It's his passion. And to be honest with you, I think, there's nothing more rewarding at the moment for him than to receive photographs of built kayaks because each one is beautiful. Each one represents the passion of the builder, their creativity. And it's just wonderful to see this vision of enabling people in a low cost, low skilled way to create beautiful kayaks that are safe and perform well. Is he a Greenland style enthusiast or Oh, no. was he into it before you got into it? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm the Greenland enthusiast in the family. My father, almost his entire life, he paddled with a Euroblade. He's a spoon paddler. Mm-hmm. It's not until recently that he picked up a Greenland paddle and thought, hmm, maybe I should have used one of these. So no, he has, he has carved his own paddles. He has paddled with them. But he is predominantly paddled with with a Euroblade. Well, he started off doing a lot of whitewater. He moved into sea kayaking. He has a large collection of modern commercial sea kayaks, sort of NDK valleys, P&Hs, wilderness systems. His boat shed is full of all sorts of them, plus Vembers, Vembexes, Shrikes, Shrike LVs, and all those. And so my passion for Greenland style has infected him. And so that's really, it's it, it passed down from son to father versus from father to son in this case. Um, the passion for building came from him, but the passion for Greenland and traditional paddling came from, from me. We married together those two passions and came up with this project. I'm curious, what was his initial reaction when you started getting into Greenland style? I think that he was just excited that I was getting afloat. He he understands the tremendous value of being close to water. I don't know if you've ever read the book Blue Mind, but I'm a huge believer in the therapeutic qualities of being afloat, being close to water. And he knew I needed help. And so 
I, I think I'm very fortunate to have an incredibly supportive set of parents and wife and daughters. They all tolerate my passion well. And I say tolerate with tongue in cheek. They're, my daughters have learned to roll. My wife has learned to roll. She paddles with a Greenland paddle. She paddles a Vemba. She has her own rolling shrike. I have pictures of my daughters doing balance braces at sort of age five. They're so cute. I've, I've infected the whole family. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of fun. You're very lucky to have that kind of relationship. I, uh, I love my parents just as I feel very blessed to have been given the skills and the passion to build things, both from my mother and my father. My mother taught me to sew and I recently just finished uh, building a strip built sailing boat and was sewing the sails and sewing the covers for that using her sewing machine and the skills that she passed down to me for that. And every time I pick up a, a saw, I think of my father and my grandfather before him who, you know, they passed on their passions for making things and using tools. And uh, it's a great thing. I, I've had um, my daughter, Emma, she has, she's helped with many builds and I always try and get her involved when she comes to visit. She's bent a few pieces of wood and she's used a, a few things. She, she and her boyfriend helped me sand down the hull of my last build, which was great fun. Um, so I'm doing my little bit to try and pass on those skills. All right. Well, I think uh, we should wrap it up there. One last question. I know you have a lot of information and resources on the internet. Can you go over where people can find you on the internet? Absolutely. So most people find me through my rolling website, which is kayakrolls.com. And that's kayak spelt the Inuit way, Q-A-J-A-Q-R-O-L-L-S.com. So that's my, that's my rolling website. Um, the, the kayak designs are all shared freely on cnckayaks.com. The CNC is Chris and Nick Crowhurst, kayaks.com. And then I also have a blog that I'm starting about trips and travel called Conscious Strokes. And that's really trying to blend together my passion for yoga and mindfulness and uh, vegan food with paddling and taking people and myself to great places. So those are the three websites, Kayak Rolls, CNC Kayaks and Conscious Strokes. Well, thanks so much, Christopher. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Andrew. It was great chatting with you too. 